0: So hello everybody. Welcome to an NHSR podcast with me Zoe Turner. I'm a senior data analyst working with NHSR community and today I'm quite excited and quite nervous as well to introduce a couple of people from the Data Ethics Club. The NHSR community has worked reasonably closely with ethics but not maybe closely enough and so it's really interesting to encourage people to consider data ethics. And so I'm going to start by asking my um interviewees to introduce themselves. So I'm going to start with Nat.
1: Hi, so yeah, I'm Natalie Zelenka. I'm a senior research fellow at UCL, University College of London, where I work in health data science. Um, and before that, I was a data scientist at the University of Bristol.
0: And Hugh. Hello, my name is Hugh Day.
2: Hey, uh, I'm a final year maths PhD student at the University of Bristol uh, and soon to be data scientist here as well.
0: So first of all, let's uh, go through a little bit more about what the Data Ethics Club is, um, because some people will have heard of, (laughs) they will probably have heard of Data Ethics, but what's the club and how did it start?
1: Okay, so Data Ethics Club is a fortnightly journal club or reading group about data science and ethics. We define that pretty broadly. So sometimes it will be about workers rights. Sometimes it will be about algorithmic bias, or really just whatever people are interested in. Yeah, it's been running since January 2020. And it has has a little break for the summer. But then yeah, it runs every two weeks um, during term time, like university term time, but it's open to anybody. It runs online on Zoom. And you can just pop in, you don't have to register. So
0: you started it during the pandemic then?
1: Yeah. So, yeah, it was definitely started during the pandemic. Um and that's probably one of the reasons why it's online, but I think that's really worked out for the best because we're so lucky to have attendees from yeah, all over the world. So um I'm glad I'm glad that it did start during the pandemic because I think it wouldn't have been as successful otherwise. We set it up um, originally, myself and Nina Dakara set it up. Um, Nina Dakara is a research associate in mental health data science at the University of Bristol. And unfortunately, she can't join us today. And I think it was her idea originally. And at the time, I was a data scientist at the University of Bristol. And part of my role was to build data science communities and, and support the data science community at the University of Bristol. And further afield, um, and data the, the science and ethics was something that I had an interest in from my PhD, and so yeah, I, I kind of jumped at the chance to do that, and it was just quite good fun to to attend and to run, and a great excuse to read a load of papers that I've been putting off reading, not just papers but also kind of podcasts and. Uh, other yeah
0: you've watched apps. videos as well haven't you so it's not just um it's podcasts I think you've listened to and uh, there was a video of some great philosophers there's there's been a lot of topics that you've covered the format has been quite structured because I've gone along to it it's it's a really slick format was it always like that or is it developed over time
1: I think the format has um stayed pretty similar over time the thing that has Some parts have evolved, I would say, the write-ups. But in terms of the the general format, which is at the end of every meeting, we vote on what we're going to read next time. And the organisers choose three things off um, of our big reading list that can be suggested by anybody to vote on. We try to include things on the list that maybe narrowly missed out on a vote previously. Try to add in as much variety as possible. But, you know, in the end, the attendees make the decision and vote what we'll be reading or listening to. And I think that's been pretty, pretty stable, or at least it feels like that's been going on for a long time.
0: And I was quite impressed that you used a lot of data science tools. I was kind of introduced to HackMD which is great because you have people who come along who are not necessarily data scientists. I've been in a room before because you have like side rooms, don't you? And little groups go off and we talk through some of the prompted questions. So There's a lot of work that goes on before and after. But there were um, sociologists and philosophers and quite a few people just saying, I don't know data science, but this is a topic I'm quite interested in. So HackMD was a nice way of getting the technical markdown writers next to the, the actual text Showing it, and that was the first time I'd seen that. So, had you? How did you find out about these tools to use?
1: I think I first found out about HackMD from uh, Kirsty Whitaker, who runs the Turing Way Data Science Handbook. And oh, it was at a Alan Turing Institute, which is the National Institute for Data Science. It was at an Alan Turing Institute um, hackathon. They do these like week-long hackathons, and during my PhD they're called data study groups. During my PhD I um, attended and facilitated uh, two or three of those and yeah they used the HackMD which is like a shared document a bit like a Google Doc but where you write in Markdown and Markdown is um, a text-based format that formats things nicely in HTML without having to Use any code, it's just very simple formatting. So, for example, asterisks around something will make it italics, or two asterisks around it will make it bold. So, yeah, that's how I found out about that tool. And I, I did because I was setting it up with Nina, and she's also um, a data scientist, I did um, use setting up Data Ethics Club as an excuse to use tools that I like using and try out tools that I wanted to try out using. So for example, we have a website, which is at www.dataethicsclub.com. And that's built with mist markdown and, um, the same HTML template that I use for like documenting any Python code. I've run the PyData data theme. So yeah that made it easier for me to run and also made it a bit more fun for me to be able to try out different technologies. But then I think as well, like part of the thinking was the people we would most want to try to bring in to thinking about ethics that data scientists, they're like the least likely people to have thought about it before. And maybe if the tools are more familiar to them, you know, your GitHub and so on, then mm. maybe that will Help them to engage a bit better and I'm not yeah I can't really tell if that did work or not but um in general like I'm happy with the tools we chose and they've been good and useful I think
0: yeah I think they've opened up to people who are not necessarily yeah familiar with GitHub and what that does so Hugh you didn't come from a data science background and how did you get involved with the ethics data ethics is this a field that you're interested in
2: yeah so um I did my undergrad in maths at Bristol as well. Um, and during that time, I would uh, kind of worked on uh, a data science project, essentially for a friend on the side. Uh, and I used data science project there. I just made quote marks, but we're not recording video. But um, <laughs> like kind of uh, kind of basic level, just like manipulating uh, numerics in Excel. Um, and, and the project itself had some kind of social consequences that at the time of being a mathematician, I didn't really consider Uh, And then when it came to kind of uh, looking to publish the work, I felt uncomfortable with some of the sort of uh, whilst I was completely at peace with all of the mathematics I'd done um, in the data analysis. There was some things that I wasn't happy with the potential ramifications of the way that this data was being interpreted. But at the time, I didn't really have a good framework of kind of. Describing, like, oh, hey, what, uh, well, you know, the maths here is fine, but we need to be careful here. And I think oftentimes in, in these kind of data science projects, you run into this problem where you might say, like, well, maybe the thing you're doing is not, um, as ethical as it could be, but you're not trying to just accuse someone, like the person doing the things, so of you're an unethical person, you're a bad person, whatever. And so, I that that hadn't necessarily ended as well as I would have liked it to. And so whilst I was doing my PhD in Bristol, I think I got uh, in a mailing list for the math department, I saw the Data Ethics Club pop up. Um, And I think I'd I'd seen it for when it had started, but I was taking a class that clashed with it at the time. Um, But the class was really boring, so I dropped out pretty quickly of that. Um, You know, who needs stochastic differential equations anyway, right? So um, um, so I I came along to my first uh, Data Ethics Club, and my plan had been to sit in silence and listen, because I was, because I, my background as a mathematician is sort of more pure, like, probability stuff, so not uh, that applied, Um, and so I didn't really feel like I had anything useful to contribute, and uh, and so I I went on to my first session, and people kind of actively encouraged me to participate just by asking my perspective on things that even if I'm not a data science expert, um, my perspective still had some validity and some, some value to other people. Uh, and I like that first session was great and I really liked it. And so I kept coming back and then I think, you know, that was around before, maybe before Easter, 2020, when the, uh, so a few months after the club had started and by June or eight or May, 2020, Natalie and basically said, Hey, this is a lot of work. Does anyone want to help? And I was like, yeah, go on then. Um so um, so I and I, you know, because Natalie and Nina have done such a good job setting up and running the thing, I, I didn't want to kind of take away, I, I thought those two as the front runners is perfect. They don't, they don't need help at the front. It's the kind of behind-the-scenes stuff um that they, they were saying that they need help with. And so in particular, they'd had this idea that each session they'd take the hack MDs. Uh, and take a bunch of notes from a bunch of different breakout rooms on Zoom uh, and collate it into one big write-up. And it was a great idea, except it takes a while to do it. Uh, And so Natalie and Nina had had other priorities and and hadn't got as many of those done as as they would have liked. And so I said, well, you know what? Um, uh, I want to improve my writing skills as a a PhD student. Um, I find this stuff super interesting. So I'm happy to to chip away behind the scenes and do the write-ups. Uh, and so I really got involved with that first, and then gradually, um, as I continued working with Natalie and Nina, um, I kind of would step up to the plate occasionally with with more responsibilities, helping organise things like uh, Data Week. So um, uh, at the University of Bristol, the Gene Golding Institute, which is one of the data science hubs here, um, runs a, a, a weekly online conference called Data Week, uh, and. They've had Data Ethics Club do events pretty much every year. Data Ethics Club has been running, uh, and so the the second year um, that that was occurring, Natalie and Nina had, I believe, something to do with their Data Hazards project also running in Data Week. And I'm sure we'll hear about Data Hazards later because it's a great project. And they were basically like, "We can't organize both at once." So can, so Hugh? Can you uh, can you kind of take point on this? Uh, and it was kind of crazy to me because especially over because most of my PhD has been during uh, lockdown. I haven't. Gone to that many conferences, but there I was organizing a conference event. So, um so yeah. So um, over that time, I've got more interested in, uh, and more sort of uh, immersed in the world of of data ethics and data science. um And definitely, it's it's funny because I'm now uh, going to be working as a data scientist in a, in a few months, and that path kind of started off with me joining Data Ethics Club, and then gradually picking up experience through that, and then various other things as well.
0: Well, that's fantastic because there are different routes into data ethics because um you know you don't always have to be a data scientist or have some sort of well you've got a mathematical background but there's quite a few people in data science who have philosophy backgrounds for example (laughs) which uh, is quite funny so but you've also contributed I I guess because there was a lot of contribution from the group as a whole for the journal article (laughs) that you submitted for the data ethics club how did that I mean you come from a research background both of you so that's a thing that you would do but There was a lot of work involved wasn't it and it wouldn't have been my natural go-to from public sector thinking about publishing about something do you tell us a bit more about that
1: yeah I think actually how this came about was um before we did the write-ups um I used to write a twitter thread about um the meetings like the journal club meetings and um At a very kind of timely moment, we read the Stochastic Parrots paper, and I did a little write-up of that, and somebody from the journal Cell Patterns um, saw that write-up, I think, and then maybe attended the next Data Ethics Club, and they were organising a special issue for the journal about data science and ethics, and they... um, invited us to to write a paper um quite a loose um brief it, it you know it could have been about um it, it didn't need to be like hey this is data ethics club and these are the resources we have and that is what the paper is like but basically they invited us to submit a paper which meant that the um we could have an an open access Um, paper explaining the club and what resources are there in terms of the github repository and how other people could kind of copy the format of the club if they wanted to without paying the kind of open access fees which can be quite expensive and uh, obviously the club was kind of just set up as a like fun project for by myself and nina so it wasn't something that kind of had grant funding and still isn't something that has grant funding It's um so we wouldn't have been able to do that otherwise I don't think and it uh would wouldn't have really been the point to uh have it be closed access I don't think that would have been too good but yeah we just um sent out an email to our mailing list which is how we tell people about the upcoming meetings and said hey we're gonna we're gonna write this up as a journal article for cell patterns. We'd love any of your input. I think the, there's quite a few researchers who uh, attend, um, which I guess isn't that surprising because it was set up by two researchers um, to begin with. And yeah, we were really lucky with the people who bit and <laughs> decided to contribute. So yeah, we had we had, Hugh I I think this is maybe Hugh's first paper is that right? Yeah so it's my first
2: publication uh, I've got to find a way to cite it in my thesis somehow.
1: Yeah and then basically yeah we we wrote we wrote that up and it's available now. And maybe we can send the link so that... Oh,
0: yes. Yes. At the end of the podcast, there'll be lots of links, including the one that I want to also talk about, uh, Data Hazards is another project. So you've already got this big project on with all your other research, and then you've moved into this great project called Data Hazards. Now, I've looked into it because it sort of speaks to me as an analyst and data scientist in public sector, but it didn't have that root into it, obviously, because your backgrounds are research. So... Would you like to tell us a bit more about this great project?
1: So I think data hazards also started because we had this kind of like quite vague brief from Cell and um, Patterns about what the paper would be, and we'd been running Data Ethics Club for maybe about six months at this point, and we'd been reading all of this like amazing research by you know sociologists and philosophers, and um, and uh, we'd been lucky enough to kind of understand it because we had sociologists and philosophers there who could explain all the terms that we didn't understand as data scientists which was um was so useful and we had got to the point where we were like wow yeah these problems really exist and I'm able to notice them but what can I really do about them in my own work that was something that we always have as a bonus question at data ethics club like what change would you like to see based on what you've read or seen today and i think from what we had seen at that point um there was some different kind of things that existed for helping data scientists to work more ethically so there was some frameworks that were Uh, quite specific about specific things like, um, for example, uh, data sheets um, for data sets or model cards for model reporting. And those um, really are really useful guides for basically how to document certain types of data science that you might do, like collecting a data set or creating a machine learning model. And then there was... There was quite a lot of checklists, I think. Um, I feel like maybe the UK Statistics Authority came out with a checklist. I feel like we read a couple of these at Data Ethics Club, I think. Mm. And and what I didn't like about the checklist approach was that it, it kind of makes you feel that ethics is something you just do once at the beginning of the project and then you kind of forget about it. It doesn't really feel like embedded in the data science work that you do and it doesn't encourage you to talk with other people which I think from doing data ethics club we found really useful because it well certainly for me it really like opened my um, mind to different viewpoints of, of different people and so data hazards basically is a shared vocabulary of data ethics issues quite quite broad, Um, so from things like um, the environmental cost of um, some data science work to um, whether or not the people who are affected by the outputs of this work have given their informed consent, or there's 11 altogether of these labels currently, and each one has a name, and a description and like a nicely drawn um, little image and they're supposed to look a bit like chemical hazard labels Um, again to kind of appeal to the more sciencey audience I guess but the idea behind them really is to facilitate interdisciplinary conversations around data science and help data scientists identify issues with their research that they might want to Find mitigations for, and the idea is that it's not supposed to be. Ah, you have a hazardous research. Don't do it. Don't do any. Don't like stay away from the data science. It's corrosive, and um, it's not. Shut it down.
0: That. Shut it down. Stop it now. a Bit like ChatGPT. Let's not do it at all. Don't log in. Never use it.
1: it. Yeah. So it's 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 more about identifying some potential issues and being able to decide which of those you are able to do something about and um, how that doing something about it might look so yeah that project's been running for about six months less than data ethics club and what we've done is we've run kind of workshop events where we try and get as big an interdisciplinary group of people together and they Um, hear about real data science projects they reflect on what they've heard Um, we use a technique from um, social work which um, Nina used to be a social worker so she told me about that um, which is designed to get people to be able to listen to different perspectives and then the person whose project it was um know here's all of these different perspectives on their work and they go away and they look at that and try and choose some mitigations so on our website which is datahazards.com, it has um, safety precautions to go with each of these hazard labels and yeah we continue to develop them anybody can suggest changes to them it's an open source project Um, It's on GitHub. It uses a lot of the same kind of underlying data science tools that um, we use for Data Ethics Club. So in that way, um, it was quite quick to set up because we cannibalized some of the technology that was already there. But yeah, one of the things we did with that is that we um, ran train the trainer courses. So we have a few people who have run their own data hazards workshops in different places, like for example, at the Alan Turing Institute or at conferences. And yeah, I hope that that can be something that I continue to work on in my new role um, now, but yeah, that's 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 the project. That's great.
0: And so Hugh as well, so there's the talking to the data scientists and encouraging them to think more about what they're doing in their career, but you did a bit of outreach through the university to get those people before they even consider data science as a career. How did that go? Because that's a tough audience. You're talking to school children
2: yeah so, so when i started my phd i was kind of uh it was sort of an email that went out to everyone that was like hey we, we run these kind of outreach uh, there's a group at bristol university called widening participation as they they have some kind of government grants that basically uh, means they can pay phd students to do these outreach things um and so um initially i started my phd seven to september 2019 so the first time I did these outreach things was was on Zoom Um, and at the time I just gave a talk that was sort of a crash course in the kind of thing I did for my PhD which is looking at uh, patterns in uh, DNA replication Um, but uh, and and, you know I I think it it got some interest uh, from people but um, uh, I, I think anyone who's done a PhD will tell you that you can make anything sound interesting for about an hour but you talk about it enough times it can get, a, it can get a little bit harder to, to, to maintain that, that passion when you're talking about it to other people particularly particular and trying to inspire younger generations. So, um, I think at the end of 2020, um, when I've been with the data ethics club in the new year, we did a special Data ethics club that was essentially New Year's resolutions, but that were data ethics related, um, and so I decided um, that one of my resolutions would be to start doing outreach on data ethics instead. So rather than talking about my my PhD, I'd I I'd, uh, I'd talk more about data ethics. So I talked a lot with some of the people who attended data ethics um and some some colleagues in the math department and i was inspired by in particular a book called weapons of math destruction by kathy o'neill and uh and so basically uh in in the book uh very near the beginning in the sort of prologue uh kathy o'neill talks about a system called impact which was so it was i think in around 2008 um in washington dc there was uh generally uh, education standards was not as high as they would have liked in in high schools um around the, uh, the city uh, and so what they wanted was um so they basically you got a bunch of money and you got this problem you want to fix how are you going to do it and so perhaps some of us would think well let's give more funding to the teachers and give them more training and stuff the solution they did is they hired um a kind of uh, policy advice firm and data science firm to develop a tool for ranking teachers and then based off this ranking the bottom two percent of teachers each year would be fired um and uh and so this is like a classic example the reason o'neil talks about it in her book is it's a classic example of of where these kind of you could think of all the data hazard labels that would be associated with it kind of automates decision making and might reinforce existing biases and things like that um and uh and so Uh, I was kind of inspired by this um, and so I thought wouldn't it be a fun thing to have students design their own algorithms for ranking and then firing teachers hypothetically. So I basically would give them a. I kind of looked at the A level stat syllabus, gave and sort of give them like a crash course on correlation and some basically linear regression, uh, without too many sort of equations. But then from there, would would uh, would teach them that, and then be like, right, okay, um, we're gonna come up with our own um, models now. We're gonna think about. I kind of get them to do break it down to three questions. First of all, data science caps aside, what makes a good teacher? And so this leads to some kind of interesting discussions. Uh, I have to make sure I, I discourage them from naming and shaming any bad teachers, uh, particularly if they're the ones in the room. Uh, but uh, from there and then yeah, okay, cool. Um, you know, those are some interesting things perhaps people have said about like um are they punctual? Are they empathetic? Do they have good subject knowledge? Um, are they patient? Things like that. Um, I really
1: liked the story, Hugh, that, where you said that the students said that um, old teachers are bad. Yeah. No, so stu- being old is
2: boring. Yeah. And yeah. Boring teachers
1: are bad. Yeah. Literally.
2: And I had I had that. I think it was, a, I won't name and shame, a school somewhere in Bristol. Uh, I had a student say to me, old people are boring. Boring people make bad teachers. Uh, Therefore, your ranking system should actively penalize teachers who are older. Um, And you know, like this was like a 15 year old kid. So, like,
1: yeah, what a um, great example of a bad algorithm, though. Yeah. They're like really helping you out there.
2: Yeah, um, because I think one of the challenges with with coming up with this kind of system is thinking like, okay, what actually can you feasibly measure about your teachers? And like, it's one thing to be like, okay, we could give them like an emotional quotient test or something, but like, teachers are kind of busy, so you probably don't, they probably are not going to fill those out, particularly if filling that out might get them fired, so... So it's like okay, I get the students to think about actually what data about you and your teachers is is readily accessible: grades, grade improvement, attendance, number of complaints the teachers had against the number of detentions they give out, things like this. Perhaps their like level of qualification in their relevant subject. Um, and then finally, I get them to come up with some kind of weighting to, to each of these variables. And so it becomes quite an interesting discussion of like, should you um, prioritize grade improvement or should you should you like prioritize good grades? Um, like if, if a teacher has a class of straight A students and they stay straight A students, is that better or uh, than a teacher that has a bunch of students working at a C and then improves them to a B over the course of a year? And then you have really interesting discussions about like, well, OK, well, um, if you're penalizing, say, low attendance, if a teacher's classes have low attendance, perhaps that's a reflection of their poor teaching ability. Um, but then if if you look at teachers at boarding schools where attendance is a lot easier to enforce um, and, and in general at school with um, with like certain uh tests that you require to just enter the school they will have higher grades does that mean the teachers that work there are by default better or should you actively penalize these teachers who are working at these better schools um better att- better like achieving schools and so the whole point of the exercise is not who can come up with the best algorithm it's whoever comes up with the best algorithm is still probably not got a good algorithm um yeah. and so the idea is is you know i think as as sort of people in stem we just get taught all these tools in education we see a problem and like a data science problem we like, cool linear regression type let's do it without thinking you know in a kind of data ethics data hazards type way maybe are we sure we should even like be using say a, a linear model to 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 go about this um so yeah i've done that those outreach talks initially was doing them in schools and a bit online uh, and for some students visiting bristol university for like summer schools um since then, I've been really fortunate. I've had, uh, obviously, I, uh, Zoe, you invited me to come along to, to basically give the talk to the NHS, our community. Um, so it was a little bit daunting to go into a room of data scientists and be like, hi, here's how I think data science should be done. Yeah, I, it was had-
0: specifically for the, the Midlands Decision Support Network, right. but it's open yes. on YouTube, so I will put the... The link into the chat. Oh, I haven't
2: watched that, and I'm not sure if I will.
0: No, but maybe not. It's it's weird watching <laughs> yourself. But yeah. it was really, really excellent because we first of all talked about you showing or going through how you did outreach, and then it came to well, the outreach itself is really interesting. There's a lot of people who don't know about you know these statistics. We we're analysts, and it sounds like we know the statistics, but actually we don't really do much beyond descriptive mm-hmm. quite often. And then we're not thinking about the ethics of those decisions. So it's a very, very good talk. Uh I know don't don't watch it yourself, Q. It's really weird watching yourself. But oh, um, I might now I might it, have it to it. was
2: really good. Some, yeah. <laughs> really um, enjoyed it. But yeah, it's and it's been honestly one of the highlights of my um uh of my uh time as a PhD student it has been doing that kind of work. Um and just in general being feeling more confident talking about data science and stuff like that. Um so I'm hoping to continue that kind of outreach stuff. Um when I when I start my job as a data scientist um, yeah so so it's been it's been great um, and it's definitely you know it came up in job interviews of like oh what kind of outreach stuff might you do and I'm like well I've actually already been doing it it's kind of like oh, this wow. yeah. um, so that's been great um, and so and and just as a as an aside as long as well as the write-ups uh, less so this summer I've been a little bit busy finishing off my thesis but um, I kind of uh, talked with actually Nina about Uh, As well as the write-ups, having some members of the of the Data Ethics Club write their own kind of standalone blog posts about things they're interested in, and so we've had a couple of those. uh, And I think once I've kind of finished my PhD, I'm going to try and push to get a bit more people involved writing up. But I thought I'd write the first one uh, to kind of get the ball rolling, Um, and it's called uh, the G and GLM. Sometimes stands for garbage, Uh, and it's about and it's basically about I give an outline of the um, uh, of the talk. but I also talk about my experiences. So I, I share the, the anecdote of uh, of the student thinking that all old people are boring uh, and a few other things like that. And in particular, I had some experiences around uh where students asked me about uh when their, their GCSE or A-level results were predicted during COVID when there were exams. Uh, and I had some pretty grumpy-looking students being like, okay, what went wrong there? Tell me, tell me, stats, magic man, how do how do we fix this? So, um, but yeah, um, that that's been great, and so um, definitely, um, there's an amount of familiarity I've gotten with the general kind of field of data science and data ethics, which I got through attending the data ethics club and, and I guess writing about it as well, uh, which which really came in clutch there.
0: Um, that's a great ending for um three brilliant topics that you've extended for passionate reasons, not so much always because somebody's asked you to do something, and they've just. They're great and they take up a lot of time, I'm sure, but we're really grateful, but they're great opportunities to extend those skills that you may require for other roles that you take on. And that's kind of the purpose, I think, of NHSR community, bringing it... A little bit to what we do. So we've also got GitHub repositories open for people just to come and try out things and take them their own way and just contribute. So it's wonderful to talk to some more open science type things that you're doing, which is great. And so I'll end this podcast and say thank you again for all of your work. I'll put lots of links in because a lot of these things you can get involved with as well. And if... It not in your area and you want to start it up I'm sure we can get the resources or you know the help if nothing more the mentoring to get them started so thank you again Hugh and Nat and also Nina although she couldn't come today she's been integral to a lot of the work that you've talked about today so thank you everybody and we'll catch up soon